0: You're listening to the Bloom Europa podcast, a project that privileges new and independent thinking on Europe, while discussing its current challenges. In each episode, we take a holistic but hard hitting approach to analyzing pan European affairs.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Adérito Vicent and I'm your host for today's show. Uh, I'm accompanied by Anna Faringer and Carlos Montenegro. So, in our fourth episode, we are talking about what will be the impact of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, with Professor Alexander Stubb, who is the director of the School of Transnational Governance, at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. Professor Stubb was the Prime Minister of Finland between 2014 and 2015. He was also a member of the European Parliament and of the Finnish National Parliament. In addition, he was until recently the Vice President of the European Investment Bank from 2017 to 2020. Therefore, we will discuss everything there is to know about the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO and its impact on European security in the context of the current Russia's war on Ukraine. Furthermore, we would like to remind you that this episode was recorded on the 5th of October. Hello, Professor. Thanks for joining us. We are very pleased to have you here.
2: My pleasure.
1: So, let's start our conversation with President Putin's last week's speech at the Kremlin, in which he formally proclaimed the annexation of the four occupied Ukrainian territories. Uh, As you know, President Putin and the other top government leaders in Moscow are making explicit nuclear threats In fact, senior US and NATO officials have warned Russia that may resort to the use of technical technical weapons following their recent battlefield setbacks in Ukraine. In an interview with CNN's Farid Zakaria GPS, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that he expects President Vladimir Putin to continue to suggest he might use nuclear weapons in Russia's war with Ukraine. And that is possible Uh, he could actually do so. So my question is, how much of Putin's nuclear threats should be taken seriously?
2: Well, I think we have to look at Putin's latest activity through two speeches. Uh, One was the one where he mobilized the troops and threatened nuclear weapons uh, and declared the independence of the regions. And then the second one was, of course, when he uh, annexed those regions to, uh, to, the Ru- to Russia. Um, in many ways, I think uh, it's a turning point in the war. It shows to us that Putin will actually go all the way. Uh, he's not going to back down. I also think that talk of nuclear weapons and uh, mobilization are to a certain extent a sign of desperation. Uh, unless you are in real trouble, you don't threaten with the use of nuclear weapons. It's, it's just something that is, is, is not done, especially in civilized nations. Um, uh, I think we should take his threats seriously because Putin is very unpredictable and obviously he's in a corner. But I do think that the Americans are engaged in dialogues with the Russians and the Russians will soon understand why uh, nuclear weapons should not be used.
1: As you know, uh, uh, President uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukraine president, announced he was accelerating his country's proposal to join NATO hours after the, the Russia declared uh, that it would annex the, the four regions of Ukraine territory. Uh, NATO Secretary General Ian Stol- Stoltenberg said in a press conference on uh, 1st of September that Ukraine has a right to apply for NATO membership. Uh, however, he added that the possible membership was up to the NATO's 40 member states. Uh, in addition, the, the heads of nine European NATO members, especially from Eastern and, and Central Europe, on, on, on the 2nd of October, issued a joint statement backing a path to membership for Ukraine in the US-led security alliance um, and NATO, of course. So in this context, how likely is the um, the adherence of Ukraine to NATO? And what are the consequences of that decision for the alliance and for the European security?
2: I think the base case or the starting point should be uh, an analysis of what the new European security order looks like. Um, After the Cold War, it was very much based on the principles set out in the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. In other words, the OSCE, so the Helsinki Accords from 1975, and and then built upon by the Paris Accords from 1992. And they had a lot to do with the uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty of uh, nation states, about independence and and non-violence. Russia, of course, broke this first in the war in Ukraine in 2000, war in Georgia in 2008, then by annexing the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, and now finally by a full blown attack on, on uh, Ukraine. But if the base case is a Europe divided into two and a security structure where on one side you have more or less 40 European states, uh, democracies, including of course, Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova and the Western Balkans. Uh, And then the other side, you have uh, an isolated Russia. Then I think it's uh, very important that we begin a serious conversation about what the security order looks like. And for me, it looks like those, those countries who want to join the European Union should be able to do that in the long run. And those countries that want to join NATO should be able to do that in the long run as well. I don't think this change would have happened was it not for Putin's attack. I, for once, don't believe that Finland and Sweden would have joined NATO was it not for Putin's aggression in in Ukraine. So I think if we take the long game, um, Ukraine uh, should become a member of the European Union and of NATO. But of course, this is going to take a long time.
1: Yes, it's just a it's just a small follow-up question. Um, but as you know, the Treaty of um, Washington, uh, especially specifically the Article Five of the Treaty of NATO, says that uh, a country that um, there is already in conflict, the other allies have to to enter in uh, as a, as a united yeah. against, uh, against yeah. that attack. If the if the conflict continues with with Russia. Don't you think that that some countries in Europe, uh, especially in NATO countries in Europe, might find the the solution of Ukrainian getting into NATO a bit, um, you know, should I say, uh, uh, unwise?
2: Well, I mean, again, it depends on what kind of timescale you are looking at. I mean, if the base case is uh, divided Europe, I, I think. We need to look at it from a broader perspective and, of course, we're not talking about Ukrainian NATO membership tomorrow or or next year, we're looking at it uh, in the long term. Um, In Article 5 and collective defense, it's it's very clear, the article's been only used actually once and that was in conjunction with uh, 9-11. but you know, if we have an uh, imperialist, uh, revisionist, and aggressive power on the borders of Europe in the form of Russia, then I think it is uh, our duty to collectively try to defend countries that don't want to be annexed by that particular country. Uh, so probably, you know, well, obviously, uh, Ukraine won't join NATO in the middle of a conflict. But uh, the discussion of joining NATO at a later stage, uh, I think, should take place.
1: I have a a question now. On the the 21st of September, after Putin announced partial mobilization, we now have Russian citizens starting to queue up to the border and to leave the country. Uh, Finland, which kept its borders with Russia and opened uh, since the beginning of the conflict, announced two weeks ago that is going to ban Russian tourists from entering the country and becoming the last EU neighborhood to do so after Vladimir Putin's decision toward their mobilization. Uh, Leading the cause that the EU should open its borders to Russians, uh, European Council President Charles Mitchell said last week to Politico and and I quote that you should uh, do an openness to those who don't want to be instrumentalized by the Kremlin. I would like to ask what is your perspective on, on this matter?
2: Well, I I think the issue is a little bit more complicated and complex than than the introduction. First observation is to say that it is my understanding that when we speak, Russia has been able to mobilize roughly 200,000 soldiers, whereas 700,000 have escaped the country. Mm. Uh, And that's pretty much uh, all over the world. Second clarification is that it was precisely the European Union which was not able to have a united position uh, on the visa ban Mm -hmm. and therefore countries like Finland uh, had to take what can be called unilateral measures Um, and uh, it should also be very important to clarify that we're talking about tourist visas not just like you know getting people in Uh, and if you look at the uh, traffic on the border of Finland uh, it's not been exactly zero sum, uh, but the flows of individuals going out and coming in uh, hasn't shifted radically. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's quite a calm border at the moment. Uh, I think it's a very complex question in the mm-hmm. sense that you know those that want to escape mobilization. I mean, do you give them political asylum, yeah. uh, or do you just allow them uh, you know to come in on tourist visas? After all, they're trying to escape a war situation. Uh, so I, I, I don't, have a, I don't okay. have a precise answer on this question, okay. I'm afraid.
1: Okay, okay. Thank you. Right, so uh, now I have a question about uh, you know, this, the, actually the summit uh, that uh, was decided that Finland and uh, Sweden should become members of the Alliance. Um, as you know, this was a decision made on the 29th of June in Madrid. And my question is, uh, ahead of the NATO's uh, leader summit, Turkey lifted uh, its opposition to Finland and Sweden's NATO uh, bid after long negotiations and signed a trilateral memorandum to support the invitation of the countries to NATO. At the moment, and according to, for instance, uh, NATO parliamentary assembly, the session process has been very successful. Only Hungary and Turkey have not ratified the session protocols yet. So do you think that these countries have reasons to delay the session process or create last minute obstacles to the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO?
2: Well, in the bigger picture, I'm not too worried because uh, Finland pretty much got bilateral security guarantees almost immediately after the war began, you know, from the United States, uh, from the United Kingdom and many other NATO countries. So on top of that, we have one of the strongest standing armies in in Europe with 900,000 in reserves, 280,000 that can be mobilized uh, in time of war with mandatory military service with 62 F-18s, just bought 64 F-35s, one of the most sophisticated land-to-air, air-to-land missile defense systems. And it's not exactly like we have those to defend ourselves from from Sweden. So I'm quite relaxed about the situation. I think uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, mediatic sexiness about who is ratifying when, where, and how. This is, however, the fastest uh, accession process in the history of NATO, and the reason is very simple. Finland is more NATO compatible than most NATO states. So I I am as sure as one can be that, Hungary will ratify Finnish NATO membership, and then finally Turkey will as well. Whatever the transactional costs are going to be, I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, so Anna, I pass to you uh, your question to be presented.
2: Hi, <laughs> um, so with Finland and Sweden, Sweden's, um, recent defense spending increases their naval and air force capabilities. Uh, Many are optimistic that they will be security contributors rather than security consumers. Do you think Finland, Sweden will be helpful in making the European side of NATO more self-sufficient and kind of shift the burden sharing? Oh, definitely. I mean, Finland is very strong uh, in the air and on the ground. And Sweden is very strong uh, at sea. Uh, Our military uh, equipment is completely NATO compatible. Uh, And I I think the line that Finland took when not joining NATO uh, after the Cold War was to integrate our defense systems so close to the American defense systems that essentially they wouldn't work without American service and, and, and help. Um, I mean, I think it's mind-boggling that Finland has more reserves than, you know, France and Italy combined. Uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, it's, we're definitely a security provider uh, to the region. Um, and, and I think our membership will, of course, increase security uh, in the Baltic Sea region. I mean, our military is much bigger than that of Poland, obviously much bigger than that of the Baltic states uh, combined. Uh, bigger than the German one. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's a non-brainer and that's why it's been so easy to ratify Finnish NATO membership in all, all the states as well. Uh, kind of as a follow-up to that, um, with their strengthening of NATO's hard power, it kind of makes a return to the founding mission of NATO as being a fundamentally military-focused alliance. Um, going along with your, you um, European divided um, into two in their new security order conversations. Do you think this will set a precedent for potential new members of NATO? I mean, I I, I do think it, it, it could. Um, uh, I think NATO certainly has a renewed purpose. And in that sense, you could say that the big strategic blunder from the so-called master tactician Vladimir Putin was that everything that he hoped for went exactly the opposite way? So, you know, Ukraine became European, not Russian. Uh, Europe was united, not split. The transatlantic partnership was rejuvenated, not put into the annals of the history books. Uh, NATO found a new purpose, much like it had in 1948 as a deterrent to the Soviet Union, now a deterrent to an aggressive revisionist Russia. And then the icing of the cake, of course, has been finished and Swedish NATO membership and now an application from Ukraine. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think most European states will be members of NATO and uh, this is the legacy of Putin.
1: Right. Uh, as a follow up to that question, it's just a small one. Uh, in that case, in that context, what do you think about uh, possibly, for instance, a country like Moldova? That probably would feel threatened by by Russia's uh, aggression in Ukraine because they have their own problems with the, with their territory. Uh, so, what do you think uh, Moldova's position would be? I know that they already are starting to apply for the European Union, but but they were uh, prudent not to apply to NATO yet. So, what what are your thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what kind of a domino effect we we get here. Of course, there was a domino effect with the EU membership applications, which came chock a block after each other for you know Georgia, Moldova, and, and Ukraine. Um, I'm sure there are conversations between you know NATO officials, the US, uh, Moldova, and many others. I think in the short run, we probably won't see an application, but in the long run, we might. It just depends a little bit on how things uh, settle. Um, and I do think that, as I've said in some of my you know, YouTube lectures as well, I, I think they're short-term, medium-term, and long-term implications. And I, I think the short-term focus right now should be on, on obviously you know, trying to end the war uh, with some kind of a peace settlement, but that peace settlement to be honest the only solution i see is that russia gives back the territories that it has tried to annex um, and and then protect the near abroad and that of course means you know the likes of georgia and the likes of moldova and, and ukraine as well because i do think that this is a semi permanent situation and, and certainly you know it's it's going to be an issue, issue that's going to last at least one generation right just a,
1: just a small question about this so, in that possible po- political settlement uh, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, do you think that uh, Russia would be willing to to give it back, uh, for instance, Crimea?
2: <laughs> no, I mean, obviously not. But but you know, their the, the, their military capability is very limited at the moment, and uh, you know, at some stage, there's going to be ha- have to be a transactional peace. I I don't know what it's going to be. I mean. One of the ideas that I've toyed with, uh, which I might be completely wrong on is that, you know, Ukraine gets back the four territories, including uh, Crimea. Uh, And then as a transaction, uh, Russia doesn't have to face international prosecution for the war crimes that it has committed. Um, You know, is this a cynical view? I don't know, you know, you be the judge of that, but uh, I just don't see any other transactions at the moment which, which could end the war. Uh, and obviously, I think everyone wants to end the war.
1: Right, so finally, uh, considering your unique experience and invaluable expertise, how do you think, or how do you see yourself contributing to the pinning integration process of Finland and NATO? Do you, do you see any future role in that regard?
2: No, I mean, you know, I've uh, I left politics in 2016 and uh, I'm now mostly engaged in, uh, you know, outside commentary, but I've also taken a line that I, I do not give any interviews in Finland uh, or if I do, it's very rare. So just to give you an example, I've given almost 500 uh, interviews to international media about the war in Ukraine, but only two or three in Finland. And, and the reason for that is that if you're a former prime minister, or a foreign minister, or finance minister, uh, you know, quite often the media then uh, sort of tilts it in a direction whereby I would be criticising the sitting government, and and I don't want that. You know, I've been there, I've done that. I was in government for eight years. I know it's difficult enough uh, for the people involved. Uh, they don't need someone from the outside, you know, giving advice. So if I have any advice, I do it privately. Uh, and in that sense, I don't have any role in, in the accession process of Finland to NATO.
1: Right. But, uh, but as a citizen, you, you can, right? As a citizen... Yeah, uh, but it's you, you know
2: all, all, yeah, but all animals are equal. Some are just more equal than others. So, unfortunately, as a citizen, I'm a former prime minister. So, you know, if I give a view on what Finland should do, then that is considered a political statement in Finland. And I, I try to avoid that. I, I, I enjoy looking at things from the outside and, and providing analysis. It's, it's actually much more comfortable and to be honest, much easier as, as well. So I'm not very happy with my role at the moment.
1: Thank you, yes. So with that in mind, uh, Professor Alexander Stoop, uh, thank you so much for your discussion and for coming to our podcast.
2: My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. We kindly invite you to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Spotify, YouTube and other platforms. You can also check out all the links and resources on the show's notes. That's all for this episode, folks, and we look forward to you tuning in next time. This was a Bloom Europa original production.